let's stay in that place, that, that uh, just the worshipful space right now. I'd like to, for you to just, uh, as you're seated, before we turn in our Bibles, would you just take a moment, maybe just in stillness and quiet, just to, just to collect yourself, just to take a deep breath. And I'd just like for you to pray and thank God for who He is. What is it about who He is in this moment that you're grateful for? Father, Lord, Abba, King, Redeemer, Savior. Just take a moment. And then just knowing that you're in the presence of Almighty God, surrounded in an ocean of His love and His grace, He's longing to meet with you tonight. Would you just invite Him in this moment to be who He is, who you need in this very moment? Father, we are nothing without You. We are nothing on our own. We were lost and in need of a rescue and we were all children without a home. So we thank you that you have brought us to yourself and brought us into a family. Father, we're grateful. Please bless us tonight. Lead us where you have called us to. Through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. I'm very glad to see all of you tonight. I'm very glad to be here. Uh, I invite you to turn to Jonah. Chapter 4, we're going to be in the last chapter of Jonah tonight, and uh, as you're turning there, I'd like to tell you about a book uh, that I read recently. It's not a new book, but I just came upon it recently. It's called Invitation to a Journey. It's called Invitation to a Journey. It's by a guy named Robert Mulholland, and it's a short book. It's a readable book about spiritual formation and disciplines and things like that something our church is very uh, high on. It's what we value here is being formed. And so Robert Mulholland in his book, Invitation to a Journey, defines the process of spiritual formation like this. He says, spiritual formation is a process of being conformed into the image of Christ for the sake of others. We can leave that up there for a moment if you'd like to write that down. I love this definition. I love this definition, and I love that book because he takes a chapter at each piece of the definition. But the first thing you need to see is that spiritual formation is a process. It's a process, and this is good news. This is good news for us who are being formed spiritually. And it's good news because it's a process, and it's not something that you just decide to wake up tomorrow and be formed spiritually. You can't just go to bed tonight saying, I think I can, I think I can, and then tomorrow be some kind of super saint monk, okay? No more than the 10-year-old can go to bed at night and saying, I think I can, I think I can, tomorrow I want to be seven feet tall. It just doesn't happen, you know? We, we allow for growth physically, but we never allow for growth spiritually. So I love this definition because it's a process. It takes time, and it's not always a linear process shooting upward, it more often resembles a roller coaster, okay? We think about Jonah. We look at where we met him in chapter 1. 
And his is certainly not an upward tick on the graph, is it? Well, I'm glad that spiritual formation and being formed is a process because where we're going to see him tonight, man, this dude is way at the dippy, dip, tippy bottom. Can you say tippy of the bottom? Well, he's at the tippy of the bottom, whatever that is. But it's okay, Jonah, and it's okay, you guys, because spiritual formation is a process. It's a process of being conformed. So here's more good news, because it's, it's less about, I think I can, I think I can, and it's more about being yielded and being conformed. You're being shaped, you're being molded, okay? And this is not something that you do yourself, rather you just Put yourself before God who desires to conform you into what? Well, the image of Christ. More and more, this Christian journey of being formed is being formed to look more and more like Jesus. So we yield to the Father, we follow Jesus, and we look more and more like Him. And again, it doesn't just happen tomorrow morning. It's a process. But here's my favorite part of this fantastic definition. It's a process of being conformed to the image of Christ. Watch. For just myself so I can feel great? No. You are being formed into the image of Christ for a purpose and that purpose for the sake of others. And I love this. I love this so much because if you look at Jesus, the one in whom we're being formed, how much of what Jesus was about was geared toward others. I've talked about in this church before how Christianity is a lone religion among all the world religions in that it is decisively, unapologetically other-focused. So the process that you are taking, whether you're aware of it or not, being a part of God's family and God's community, following Jesus, you are being formed into the image of Jesus. And sometimes you look like you're low down in the pits where Jonah can be. And then sometimes you're up on the crest of the wave, but it's a process. And it's not just for you. It is for others. And that is the all-important piece. So Jonah is in process. We think about where we first met him. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah, and then you know that he runs. That's a bad part of the process. But it's a process we see over chapters 1, 2, 3, and finally tonight in 4, God's mission to Nineveh, sending Jonah, is part of his growth and formation process. His ministry is a gauntlet of formation, okay? Your family relationships, your parent relationships, your friend relationships, your work relationships are part of the process that God is using to form you for the sake of those people. And Jonah, we see, played out this roller coaster of spiritual formation throughout this chapter. It's a process. For Jonah, it's a process of disobedience and obedience. He's partnering with God and then he's running from God. Well, where we find him in this part of the process in chapter 4 tonight is that Jonah gets stuck in his process and he gets stuck because he has the right view of God, okay? But he's not letting that view of God affect his love for the sake of others, okay? We're going to see tonight he's stuck in the process because he professes the right view of God, but he's not really letting that view, watch, form him for the sake 
of others. We're going to see tonight that Jonah is going to be angry at God. I'm cutting up this last chapter into two halves. Tonight we're going to see Jonah's anger. And he's going to complain and he's going to confess that right view of God. But it's not affecting him for the sake of others. He's stuck in the process. Let's read in Jonah. Let's look at the first three verses of chapter four. This is Jonah's complaint and Jonah's confession. Next week, we're going to look at God's compassion and God's question for Jonah. So this is Jonah's complaint, confession, his side of the dialogue. Next week, we're going to look at God's side of the dialogue, Lord willing, okay? Follow along with me here in Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Let's see where he's at in his process. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. Well, what is he talking about? Well, last week we saw that God took a chance on these Ninevites, and Jonah preached for a day, and 120,000 repented. And then God relented from his destruction his judgment that was coming to the Ninevites. So this happened, and to Jonah this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is why I tried to forestall, that, excuse me, that is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, And abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Let's pray and we'll get into that. Father, we thank you for this confession, but we ask that it would not just be knowledge for our heads, but we ask that we would drink deeply of you and that you would continue to shape the image of yourself in our minds and our hearts, that we would find you brilliant and beautifully revealed in the face of Jesus, our Abba Father, who has made us your children, and you have done so by the outpouring of your Holy Spirit that fills us and empowers us. So Lord, we ask that your word would be spoken and that you would help us to see you and to love others and respond in the way that you would wish us to in our process. Bless us in the name of Jesus, amen. So verse one is a strong verse. And it's a strong verse because it could be read, to Jonah this was a disaster, a great disaster, okay? Here's a prophet, a religious guy, who had massive success, okay? If Billy Graham goes out to the modern day Nineveh, and he starts talking for 10 minutes of maybe a 30-minute talk, a third of the way through, and all of a sudden 120 people just flood the stage and give their hearts to Jesus, praise God, amen. This is great success. He gets on the cover of Baptist Today, if that exists, and they say, look at this, praise God. And to Jonah, this is a disaster. This is terrible. This is insane. Here's why it's a disaster for Jonah. It's a disaster that they, the Ninevites, averted disaster. Jonah was obedient to what God had called. His body was doing the motions. 
His mouth was speaking what God told him to speak, but his heart was so far away back in northern Israel. His fart, his, his fart, are you serious? <laughs> Amen, you guys have a great night. I just said fart. I was kind of hitting the ground running too. His heart was so far from God. To Jonah, it was a disaster that they averted disaster. But really, here's why it was a disaster. Here's why it was so wrong for Jonah. It was so wrong because his view of God was more as a strict, unflinching judge. And even though Jonah was going through the motions of God's mission, he was angry at God because God acted from a posture of mercy and acceptance rather than wrath and destruction. This is messing with Jonah's actual view of God. And so he what? He becomes angry. And this is funny because God, in a word play in chapter 3, verse 10, God turns from his anger. God turns from this plan that he was going to do. And so when God stops being angry, that's when Jonah picks up the baton and becomes angry. God drops it. He's done because he sees their repentance. He sees the fast. He sees their hearts. He sees them turning. And that's when Jonah just gets so angry because he cannot fathom in his idea, in his view of God, he cannot accept that his God has forgiven his enemies, Jonah's enemies. And so the deal is that people don't want the death row inmate pardoned until they're the inmate, right? People don't want the inmate pardoned until they're actually sitting in the cell and the inmate. We want God the judge so long as he's not angry and judging us. We want to judge the other person so long as they don't turn around and judge us. And so this is why grace is so offensive. Because it's for the undeserving. And it's for those who turn and repent. Even the most wicked and violent of offenders. Okay? This is good news. This is grace. But it's also the reason why when we get the religious idea that these people are wrong, that God's grace is for us and not for them, it's a big, big problem, and we have big, big problems with God who's letting any old riffraff into the family. And this happens because to Jonah, Nineveh was the personification of empire and evil and wickedness and violence. And for Jonah, God was a covenant God of his people. And so we want to keep the us and we want to keep the them away. In the Super Bowl, I don't know if you remember amidst all the ads, but you 2 had a song that was for free. It was called Invisible. And you could download it for free before their whole album became free, I guess, a couple months ago. And so I went on and I got that song because I'm a U2 fan. And uh, the, there's a lyric at the end of the song. And he just keeps repeating and singing as a mantra. He says, there is no us. There is no, uh, uh, excuse me, there is no them. There is no them. There's only us. There's only us. And so the song is about humanizing the them. Because we can be angry at the them. 
And we can wish God not forgive to them. And we can keep having our enemies be them so long as we don't humanize them and put a face to it. So long as we don't want to see them eating at our table. We want to keep the enemies in the car, on the other lane, cutting us off, separated up from us. We want to keep the them there. We don't want to realize that we may have more in common and we may all need grace just like they do. There is no them, there is only us. And God, at just the right time, sends Jesus, okay? Because he saw a world at war and he sends Jesus to bring peace. God looks down at a world full of rebellious enemies and he sends Jesus to make them family. This is the view of God and this is how God has always operated. And Jonah should know from another prophet named Jeremiah. If you'll turn there, it's on the screen. Look at Jeremiah 18. Look at Jeremiah 18. Jonah's angry. His view of God has no frame of reference for this. But this is how God has said he's going to do it. He says in Jeremiah 18, verse 7, If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down and destroyed. Is that what he did for Nineveh? 40 more days? If at any time this happens, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, did Nineveh repent of its evil? 120,000, greatest sackcloth blowout, fasting prayer, turning from their evil ways. What does God say he'll do? I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. What does 3.10 say? He relents and he does not inflict the disaster he had planned. And then he goes on and he says, and if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. See, the problem is Jonah, as a prophet, expected that every prophecy was set in stone. But here's the deal. We looked last week at Ezekiel 18, where God says he does not delight in the death of anyone, but he wishes that all would turn to him and find life. He wants it for his covenant people, and Jonah cannot get through his head that God cares for all of his creation, even the wicked nation. So it is totally within God's right. In this context, in Jeremiah 18, he's talking to his people Israel. But it is totally up to God to say, I warned them about this, but if they come and turn to me, I will respond to them in a posture of mercy, not a posture of wrath that you think I ought to. And this is so ironic. Because in chapter 2, Jonah, who is far from the Lord and in his view of God, just as much deserving of judgment and wrath, He's deliberately disobeyed. He's fled. He's turned his back on God. And he cries out to him, and God, just like he said, responds in a posture of mercy and welcomes him back. And it's ironic because in this whole psalm we found in the chapter 2, he says salvation comes from the Lord. But what does he say in 4.1? To Jonah this seemed very wrong and he became angry. He wanted their destruction. And so when there is no them, there is no them, there's only us, you begin to see that Jonah at this moment in his process of spiritual formation is no better than the Ninevites who were bent on destruction. Jonah in his heart was just as willing to destroy the Ninevites 
He says it, look, in verse 2. He prayed to the Lord. Here's his complaint. You ready? Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? You'll remember we talked about why did Jonah run? This is why. I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I tried to forestall their repentance. And his complaint is this. I knew this would happen. I knew if you risked it and gave them a chance, and they actually did it, those mongrels, you would welcome them to the table. This is why he fled. He would rather die in the sea. He would rather run deliberately then give them a chance. But God took a chance. And here's why he did. That was Jonah's complaint. Look at Jonah's confession. He's still praying. Look at chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 2. This is such a key to this book. This is the key to what we see of God and the proper view of God. This is so crucial. Here's Jonah's confession. I knew. He knew it way back then that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. This is Jonah's second confession. I know I keep hopping back, but we need to understand that Jonah was saying the right things even before this in chapter 4, right? Look at chapter 1, verse 9. It's not on the screen. Chapter 1, verse 9. He says, all hollow and churchy to the sailors who were afraid of this storm. He says, I am a Hebrew and I fear Yahweh, the God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea. He says the hollowest BS church answer. It's so right, but it's so wrong when it comes from him. So here he says the exact right thing. And here's why it's the right thing. Because if you ask the Hebrew in Jonah's day, what is God like? Okay? Ask a Jewish person, an Israelite, what is God like? They would tell you this statement. It's a statement that is foundational for God's people. You want to talk about a confession? We confess the Apostles' Creed. Okay? To be an Orthodox Christian, you say, I believe in God the Father maker of heaven and earth. And you go on and you say, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, born of the Virgin Mary, who, you know, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, you go through the Apostles' Creed and say, this is basic, bare minimum Christian. For the Hebrew, what is God like? In Exodus 34, God is forming his people. Moses goes up to Sinai, and when God passes by, in Exodus 34, it says that God's stands there in front of Moses. And God can say anything he wants about himself because he's just introducing himself to Israel. He's just now introducing him, getting to know Moses. They're on the third date from Match.com. They're still trying to figure out where they went to high school and what they like and what movies they like. And of all the things that God could say, God says this in Exodus 34. I am the Lord, I am gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. He talks about how he keeps his faithful love to generations, to thousands of generations. He says it also. 
in Joel. We'll look at that here in a bit. But if you were to ask a Hebrew, this is what they would say. This is foundational for their view of God. And so Jonah says the hollow churchy answer again, doesn't he? But his view is still not affecting him for the sake of others. So I wonder, you know, what, what, is, what is God like? What is he after? When he says, I am gracious, hear this. Let these words wash over you. Maybe what you need to do is just sit with 4-2, the second half of this verse. If you're struggling with hollow churchy answers as to who God is, would you start maybe here? You could do worse. But this pops up over and over in the Old Testament. This is an early creedal statement. Would you sit and hear that God is gracious? The word there is only used in the Old Testament for God. There is some kind of undeserving generosity that only God manifests. And the Hebrews understood this. Would you sit and see that, God, you are compassionate. That word is a soft word. It's a soft compassion that's used in places in the Old Testament, like soft and gentle, like a mother to her child. I'm not a mother, but I fed a bottle to Nora with a quiet house this afternoon and just looked at her face just looking down with compassion because she doesn't know her left hand from her right. She can't crawl, stand up, or do anything. But there is a deep and abiding, sweet and soft love that even my manly, muscular self can even get to. <laughs> even the God who created the heavens looks at His people with a compassion that is unlike any other compassion that can be found in this world. And isn't it such good news that this God, look, look at the scriptures. What is God like? The Hebrew says, slow to anger. God is patient. But the problem is we grow up and hear the people on TV and we think that God just can't wait to lightning bolt you because of that cuss word you said. Do you know that a high schooler asked me when I was a youth intern many, many years ago early in ministry, this guy asked me, isn't it true that when you get to heaven, Jesus will whip you for every cuss word you say? This was a 16-year-old who grew up in church because he doesn't know how slow to anger and compassionate and gracious God is. So go cuss all you want. Amen. <laughs> That's not all. What is Yahweh like? He's abounding in love that is a favorite word in our Old Testament. It's hesed. It's a covenant love. It's a steadfast love. It's an unrelenting love. This is a love that is for covenant people, the people he's made an agreement with to love and to bless, that they would be a light to the world. The closest thing that we could know in our New Testament is agape. It's an unconditional, unfathomable, beautiful love that can only describe God and not another love you can find like it in the world. And there's more good news. This is how God describes himself. He's a God who relents from sending calamity. See, this is another thing we get so screwed up because we think at the end of the age, because of all the blood moons and all this, God just can't wait to destroy this world with fire. You heard that maybe in your, your old Sunday school that he destroyed the world with, fi uh, with water then and now he's going to destroy it with fire and he's going to ball it up and throw it out. That is baloney. 
that is baloney with a capital B. God agonizes over his creation, loves his creation, wants to rescue his creation. In, in Corinthians, Paul says God is reconciling the world to himself through Christ. He loved this world so much that even when we were enemies, even when we were rebellious, Christ died for us. I said earlier that God looks at a world full of chaos, disease, and war, and he sends his son Jesus to establish a kingdom that this kingdom would override all the darkness. I said earlier that God looks at a world that is full of rebellion and he sends Jesus to make a family. God agonizes over calamity and judgment when he wants to set things right. He wants all to turn and find life in Jesus. And so I ask you today, if I were to go up to a person or a person on the street would come up to the member of Providence Community Church and what would they say, what is God like? The Hebrew in Jonah says the church answer this. What would you say? I'm being serious. What would you say? What is God like? It would make this pastor's heart very happy if you say he is just like Jesus. That would make me very, very happy. Because that to me is what I think the New Testament says over and over again. And so how we, dis how we get distorted, Jonah says the right things and knows the right things, but it doesn't affect his love for the enemies and others. But if we as Providence Community Church, if our confession would be that God is like Jesus, when people come to you and say, yeah, yeah, but what about when God is not like Jesus? I would say to them, well, we just didn't really get a chance to see him that much. I talk about the progress of revelation. What about when God doesn't look like Jesus in these places? I would say, yeah, well, we just haven't fully seen him yet. But the law was given through Moses, John says, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He says, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father. He has made him known. God is like Jesus. He is the dawn, and we see this in Jonah's confession. This is how God has always been. God has always looked like Jesus, and we get a beautiful glimpse of this in 4.2. God is love, and he is wanting to always operate and act toward his creation from a posture of mercy. And we have got to get this right. Because if we don't get this picture of God, if we don't get this picture of God, we will never love our enemies because we don't truly know God's love for our enemies. We will never love our enemies if we don't see the love that God has for our enemies. We will never love our enemies if we won't take our eyes off of Jesus on the cross long enough to look down and see around us the terrorists who had visions and wanted to see Jesus and came to him running at the cross. We will never love our enemies if we don't see the violent, lost tribes in the deepest recesses of the jungles coming to faith in Jesus who proclaims peace and rest and life. We will never love our enemies unless we see that there is no them, there is only us, 
And God is wanting to reconcile the world and he's doing it through Jesus on the cross from which he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And so the task in our mission is to get a vision of this God who is on mission. The mission is God's, it's not ours. And we go and we alert people to what God is like. And he is like Jesus crucified. He is like Jesus who is concerned for the death and destruction of his good world. And we look to that Jesus and we tell the whole world the whole truth that God is like Jesus and he is gracious and he is compassionate and he is slow to anger and he is abounding in love and he is ready to relent from judgment because James tells us mercy triumphs over judgment provided they turn by his grace and seek him. Look at Joel 2. It's going to be on the screen too, so you don't have to turn there if you don't want. Maybe these words will sound familiar. He's talking to Israel. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is what? This is Joel, not Jonah 4, okay? He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. Grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Look at verse 14. Do you hear that from the mouth of Jonah or do you hear it from the king of Assyria? Do you hear it from the violent, wicked person who says in chapter 3, who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion, verse 9 says, turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. It all starts with your view of God. The process of spiritual formation, being formed into the image of Christ, who is the image and representation of God the Father on mission. It is for the sake of others, and it's got to come from a holistic place of a compassionate, gracious, slow-to-anger God. But Jonah's stuck in that formation because he confesses God's mercy, but he complains about it, and he's not changed by it. He confesses it and says the church answer, but he's not changed by it. And he'd rather die than change. Look at verse 3 as we wrap up. Jonah, who's not affected at this point by God's mercy for these violent people who've repented. He says, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than live. God, if this is how you're going to act toward my enemies who will destroy my people, not a generation from now, if this is how you're going to act toward them, I don't want anything to do with you. See, Jonah, on God's mission, was an agent for reconciliation to his enemies. And he's probably thinking at this point, how can I go back 
to Israel and tell them what I've been up to. How can I go back? I'd rather die. It's his nationalistic worldview that he refuses to accept that Israel's God and all these texts that we've looked at that are about Israel, he is unwilling to accept that God could not just be that God to Jonah, but he could be that God to his enemies. God is not just this God to you. He is God to your lost causes and the people that have burned you and hurt you so deeply. He is a God to them and extending grace to them also. So, he had the right confession that this is a down part in his process and he's going to end on a down note, unfortunately, in Jonah chapter 4. But it doesn't have to be so with us. We don't just have to confess these things as church answers. But Mulholland finishes as we close. I love this so much. I think you need to write this down and prayerfully consider this. Where are we in the process? Well, Mulholland offers us this. If you want a good litmus test of your spiritual growth, simply examine the nature and quality of your relationships with others. If you want a good litmus test of your spiritual growth, see how much you've been reading in your Bible. See how early you wake up to pray. See all the nice answers you give to your Christian friends when they're hurting. See about all the good pieces of advice that you give that person that you yourself won't take. See all the right things that you say to your spouse and friend when you see all the nut jobs on the news about what Christianity ought to be, but is not truly because you really know it all. No, if you want a good litmus test of your spiritual growth, which is for the sake of others, simply examine the nature and quality of your relationships with others. Are you more loving, more compassionate, more patient? Does this sound familiar? You can rest assured you're looking more like Jesus if you are more loving, more compassionate, more patient, more understanding, more caring, more giving, more forgiving than you were a year ago. Lord, may it be, may the vision of you crucified, poured out for others, for the world, for enemies, sink so deeply into our heart that these confessions are not just words that we say and speak, sing, hear, may they so deeply affect the people in this church. Where when we're asked, what does God look like? We say, he looks like Jesus. And the Spirit gives witness to this because you're so gracious to me. You're so compassionate to me. You are so patient to me. You are so full of love that it overflows out of your heart into mine that God, who relents from sending calamity, would it overflow that I would be gracious for the sake of others, that I would be compassionate for the sake of of others, that I would be slow to anger for the sake of others, that I would be abounding in your unrelenting, glorious love, that I would not be so quick to judge, but I would be quick to forgive and to welcome at the table. 
for I know that that's where you will be. So may this be more and more a reality in our hearts and not just our mouths. Through Christ Jesus our Lord, who came, showed us what you were like, and invited us into your very embrace. Amen. So tonight we're going to sing and we're going to come to the table. We just invite you to spend these next couple moments before Drew comes and leads us just to just examine maybe where, where you've been in the last year. Am I more compassionate? Am I more gracious? And in those places where there's a disconnect, we just invite you to ask Jesus to let that image of him, let his presence, invite him into that place that he may make us more and more like him as we come to the table for the body broken for the world and the blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. We ask you to stand and partake and sing.